Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Be God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for your word. Father, help us to understand what we struggle to comprehend. Forgive us for where we've not obeyed your words and remind us once again that we have all the grace necessary to leave precisely, to live precisely as you've called us. We ask all this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are coming down the home stretch of Hebrews. Chapter 13, we have crossed into. We'll be in 13 for the next six months. I'm just, just kidding. We'll be in 13 until we get to four weeks of Advent, and then we'll start in a new book after the first of the year, Lord willing, uh, if we're still here. Let me set the context for us. On repeat... We have heard this, in order to persevere in the faith, of which is the primary goal of the book of Hebrews, is encouraging them to persevere in faith. If, if we're going to persevere in faith to the end, you must hear and believe what Jesus has said. It's really quite that simple. Hear and believe what Jesus has said over and over and over again. The author of Hebrews has told us this. And we just heard last week... Pastor Jeff, in the end of chapter 12, see that you do not refuse Jesus who is speaking. Jesus has spoken through his word, through his church, through his elders, and so on. And then he ends that little section in verse 28, says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So those who have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken will be those who offer acceptable service unto God. That's the, the argument coming to the end of 12. Those who've, who've received this kingdom that cannot be shaken will then have lives that offer acceptable service unto God. Don't miss that. Acceptable service. Now, what is that? This acceptable service is the standard of service. What is satisfactory in our service? What is the norm in our service? Or what is the usual? 
And just so that you're not confused, I don't mean I don't mean Sunday worship service, although that's part of it. But what does the service of the entirety of your life look like? This is what is acceptable. He's saying that this person who's received this kingdom that is not shakable will have a life, the entire life, of acceptable service, acceptable worship unto God. Nothing more, nothing less. This will be, to put it in other words, this acceptable service, this will be what is the norm, what is normal, what is regular Christian living. To put it in other words, this is what obedience will look like for a normal, regular Christian. So we've spent all these 12 chapters, in many ways, talking about persevering in faith, persevere in faith, hearing Jesus do his words. Now we're going to, in 13 here, talk about what is that going to look like in more specificity. Now he's going to give us some examples of what this acceptable service unto God looks like. Your chief job this morning is not to gloss over these examples because you think they only apply to the person beside you or in front of you or behind you. But how do these examples work themselves into my life as a normal Christian? As we do this, I want to give you a warning. A warning. There is a deeply ingrained yet subversive bent towards piety in our day. And even in this church, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by pietism? At least the way I'm defining pietism. Someone said, pietism makes a great show of obeying man-made standards, all the while giving way to great impiety when it comes to God's standards. Example, maybe you get overly annoyed at some child running in the auditorium when you are fine not reading your Bible for the past two months. Another example, maybe you get over-scrupulous about someone else's use of flowery language when you are fine gossiping with your neighbor about said person, particularly. Wilson says this, the besetting sin of a pietist is wanting to be more holier than the Bible. An example of this could be, I don't drink communion wine, I do the juice, because you want to be more holier than the Bible. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but that could be an example. You and I are tempted to write standards above what the Bible writes and then meet these standards in order to check a box and feel good about ourselves. This is an age-old problem. I warn us there because as we come to these great instructions, particularly today in chapter 13, on what the pattern of the persevering life looks like, We are not after some man-made rules. We're not after being holier than the Bible. 
What we're after is Christian living, simply doing the mundane, normal Christian things. That's why I've entitled my sermon today, Make Christian Obedience Normal Again. And I mean that in both ways in which you can take it. You may not know there's two ways, but I'll enlighten you. One, let's just get after normal Christian obedience and forget all the man-made rules. Let's just work on that. You could also take it in this way. Let's make it normal that Christians actually obey. And forget all those losers who don't want to actually follow Jesus. Okay? You can take it in both of those ways. I mean them both. The first pattern is that normal Christians love others. Normal Christians love others. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. First, let me talk about, again, as, as is my norm to talk about the, what it's not and what it is. It's good for us to see a contrast. We tend to have a more pious view of love. Remember, the pious likes, the, the pietist likes to be more holier than the Bible, obeying much of man's laws while disobeying God's. An example, let me give you an example from my own life someone else towards me, had another leader one time accusing me of neglecting to pastorally care for his wife. I asked, how? He said, because I, don't, because I didn't talk to her after the death of a relative. I said, but I talked to her after service explicitly about that to see how she was doing. He said, yeah, but you didn't call her. That would be a great example. The funny part about it is that he was serious. It's also sad. As long as I send flowers. It's another example would be, I'm showing love to my Christian family as long as I'm sitting in service with them on Sundays. Or I check a box of, I served in the children's ministry while missing what it means to walk in love with them through the week. Check some man-made potential standards in here while missing. We don't want to do that. Normal Christians love one another, and it is their lives of which they give themselves to doing such a thing. Normal Christians have a special love, particularly for their own What do I mean by that? I mean particularly for brothers and sisters that are in Christ. I don't mean that you don't love all people. Certainly, we're called to love all people. But God himself does not love all people like he loves his children. Otherwise, what would it mean to be a child of God? He has a special love for his blood-bought children, though he still loves the whole world. For God so loved the world. I'm not denying that. 
But Christians have a special love for their own, this brotherly love. They give preference to them. It's a unique love. They give of their goods to each other before they do of just anyone else. Loving your Christian brothers and sisters. Let me also draw your attention here that this idea of brotherly love is not one of just simple emotion or affection. It's one of action. Love, true love, is always effectual, meaning it always effects something toward the good, right? It always makes a difference. I mean, it could make a difference physically, emotionally, mentally, but it makes a difference. Love that does not affect something is not love at all. You can have the same feeling after a good meal at Taco Bell. Normal Christians have a love that is always effectual and shown in concrete actions. Love's not just an emotion. It's not just a warm fuzzy that you get. Look at the context. All right, where am I? Where did you get that from? Look at the context. Let brotherly love continue. And then he's going to give us two examples of what that looks like. And both of the examples are incredible demonstrations of the effectualness of love. The first example is this, showing hospitality to strangers. Showing hospitality to strangers. In our modern vernacular, when it comes to loving strangers, it means you should grab a pride flag and walk down the street with them. But he's also not telling us to open your house up as an Airbnb and do it for free, letting whoever sleep in the room next to you. That's not the call. The context here would have been Christians traveling from place to place as the gospel spread under uh, persecution. I mean, inns during this day would not have been the safest place for a Christian to stay, especially one who's intent on sharing the gospel. So they were called to open up their homes to these strangers. Now, what is hospitality? We'll spend a moment here. I I asked Pastor Jeff, since he just taught a class on hospitality, to give me his working definition. I'll give you that here. Hospitality is the friendly and generous receiving and pursuing of others in order that the beauty and goodness of the gospel may be displayed. Let me put that in simpler terms for our our moment here. For the sake of the gospel, it is living for the good of others and not yourself. Christ certainly came to live for the good of others, died on the cross for the good of others at great expense to himself. And I would make another observation about this definition. It's, it's It's about a posture of service unto others. Showing hospitality to these strangers. They're, what, what, is, what are they going to do for these strangers? Well, they're going to bring them into their homes. They're going to do more than look at them fondly with a smile. I mean, that's part of it. But they're doing more than just having happy thoughts about the stranger and well wishes and praying for them. Though there's a physical aspect to their hospitality. 
There's a posture of service and good being done unto them. I'll give you an example of the opposite of this. If on Sundays you rush out of here every Sunday, instead of availing yourself to others, conversing and catching up, you could be very inhospitable. Not walking in a posture of service unto others, but just a posture of service unto your schedule, or a posture of service unto your belly, or a posture of service unto your lost friends, or a posture of service unto your selfish children. It's a posture of service unto others. Another example of this would be having nothing but a resting, grouchy face. I changed the vernacular there for those who know. A resting, grouchy face. Some of you have that. Just look at you, and it's just always grouchy. Like, man, did you know, you know Jesus is alive, right? 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 You, you know that this isn't all about you, right? Even this moment? Now, in this context, he is talking about hospitality primarily in the act of bringing people into your homes. Specifically about that. That's the main idea. About setting people in your living room or at your dining table and sharing with them. That's the primary point. And don't gloss over that and say, well, I'm hospitable because I smile at people. So, check. There is a command here for us to draw people into our homes and to share with them and serve them. There is no call that says you have to do this every other night or three times a month. But there's a call that our lives would reflect hospitality here by inviting people into our homes. And in this particular example, he's talking about strangers. I mean, you, you might get this, I mean, have you ever invited someone to your home for the first time? You get them around the dinner table and you're like, wow, that conversation was really boring. Or wow, they don't talk at all, right? They just stare at us the whole time. I've, I've been there many times. I've probably been the one who talked too much, but these are strangers they're inviting into their home. I mean, I'm trying to encourage you to just start with the people you know in this room. When was the last time you invited another member of this church into your home? How about someone in this church that isn't much like you or in the same life stage as you or doesn't have all the same interests that you have? When was the last time you invited someone like that into your home? I was going to say a comment here like I do every Wednesday night, but then my, my home group would think I was talking about them. You know, I hear this a lot. I just don't know many people in this church. I just don't have many good relationships. I don't know where I fit in. Me, I either say this or think this at the very least. How many people have you invited into your home for dinner this past year? I know the answer for most of these people is, well, none, or maybe one, or maybe two. 
To you I would say, you have 365 dinners a year and you've invited one or two to share? Just do the math. You put that kind of time into it, you're going to get that kind of relationships out of it. Another example would be how many conversations have you had where you've not somehow managed to make the conversation about you? I'm just giving you pastoral examples of what does this hospitality look like, bringing people to our homes. We should be doing this regularly. Let me give you a few further thoughts about hospitality. When hospitality becomes about the giver, it ceases to be Christian hospitality. Let me put that in more practical uh, terms as well. Hospitality is part of giving, expecting nothing in return from the people who receive the sacrifice of your service, including a thank you. The moment you get bent out of shape because there wasn't a thank you is the moment it became an exchange of goods and services. It ceased to be gracious hospitality. What is grace? It's giving something that they don't deserve. And the moment you say, well, I'm not going to do that again if they don't give me a thank you, or if I don't feel appreciated, is the moment your service has become about you feeling appreciated. As soon as you do it for something, even a thank you, it becomes goods, a goods and services exchange, a work relationship, much like your career. And some of us work people like that all the time in the name of Christian hospitality. And then what happens is we grow bitter, or we shrink back into our hole, or we stop giving, stop caring. Hospitality next is a lifestyle. Again, a few further thoughts about hospitality. It's a lifestyle. It's a posture. It's a walk. It's a facial expression. I mean, sometimes I see some of y'all's faces, and I'm like, I'm just going to turn and walk the other way. Woo! I'm going to get down that hallway. Why? Because I can tell in that moment, like, life is just about you. There's going to be no hospitality in that moment unless I give of it all. And, And maybe I should. Maybe my running down the next hallway is being selfish. Hospitality fosters selflessness. Here's what hospitality does in fostering selflessness. It gives you a gut check on your motives every time. Why am I doing this? especially when you serve those who may not tickle your fancy in any particular way. How often have you said something like this, man, hanging out with that person is not much fun, but we should keep doing it for their good out of hospitality for that person? You ever said that? Man, I have. We should hang out with that person. It's for their good. It's not about us. It's not about what I can get. 
Next, hospitality deepens fellowship. It deepens fellowship. It's not the food that deepens the fellowship. It's the humility of service that deepens the fellowship. Right? It's because you are getting out of the way. Your selfishness and pride and all about you is getting out of the way. And when that's out of the way, then relationships can happen and, and deepening of fellowship can happen. It's then another person can enter your life. Hospitality deepens fellowship. So the first example is showing hospitality to strangers. And, and he's saying there's this, this great effect that some of you have entertained angels unawares. Next example, remembering those who have been mistreated for Christ's sake. He says those who are in prison, those who have been mistreated... He says to remember those. Normal Christian love remembers those who have been mistreated for Christ's sake. I believe the context warrants remembering those in prison that are Christian brothers that are in, that are in prison for the sake of Christ, brothers and or sisters, but Christians nonetheless. How easy is it to forget those who are mistreated for the gospel's sake. Especially in a culture that has largely enjoyed the freedom of Christianity for many years, and especially when it's not costed many of those their lives, and especially when we're in a culture that wants to be isolated from any kind of pain or suffering, whether ours or somebody else's. But think about it. What about those who are around you that have been mistreated or are being currently mistreated for Christ's sake? Whether being slandered or gossiped about. Whether they're suffering friendships being destroyed or income-making abilities hindered or salaries cut. For Christ's sake. He's saying remember those. That normal Christian love looks like remembering those, but not just thinking about them, but remember them as if you are a fellow prisoner. It means to think about life as though you're in the same shoes as them. Why? Because you're a part of the same body. Because when one part of the body suffers, another part of the body suffers. The whole body suffers. But again, again, remember, we live in a world where we're constantly trying to remove ourselves from any kind of suffering. So we don't want to be reminded of those things. People suffering the consequences of evil people. We often just want to move on with life. And he's saying, don't, don't move on with life. Remember, as though you're in prison with them. Think about this deeply. Care for them, show empathy, meet their needs. Again, this is just an example of normal Christian love. Nothing fancy. Just mundane walking with people who are suffering for the sake of Christ. Next, normal Christians pursue holiness. Normal Christians pursue holiness. 
verse 6. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Use a couple examples here, sex, money, and rock and roll. Maybe not the rock and roll. Normal Christians pursue holiness in sex. Now here, the author places a high priority on the sanctity or the sacredness of the marriage bond. And he talks about that in two ways, one very broadly, or one very broad way, and another in a very narrow way. The first way, the broad way, is that marriage should be honored by all. Marriage is a common grace given to all. It should be honored by all, all people, in every respect, and in every circumstance, by all, all the time. It should be held in high esteem. It should not be made fun of. It should not be made light of. It should not be mocked. Some of us should, like, one of the applications here would be, what do you watch on TV, and does it make a mockery of Christian marriage? If it makes a mockery of it, then you're not honoring it either. Gay mirage is a mockery. Polyamory is a mockery. A married couple who act only like business partners is a mockery. A husband that does not lead and a wife that does not follow, that's a mockery. That is not honoring marriage. Husband and wife. Do you honor the marriage bed? I'm going to get into the narrow one here in a second. Husband and wife, do you honor marriage by honoring the marriage bed? Wives, do you treat it like a duty only? That would be dishonoring the marriage bed. Husbands, do you treat it selfishly? That would be dishonoring. Do you try to get something eternal out of it when it's only a finite action? You know what I mean by that? I mean, you can't, you can't expect this infinite, glorious pleasure to come from a finite act called sex. It would be dishonoring it. Infinite, glorious Lasting pleasure only comes from God himself. So then to seek that in something he created called sex, the act of it, would be to dishonor it, expecting something from it that it cannot provide. So that leads me into this narrow application. He says for... uh, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So narrowly speaking here, sexual intercourse should remain between a husband and a wife, 
period. I had a man in counseling one time try to argue that it was okay for him to masturbate as long as he was thinking about his wife. I considered punching him, but I didn't think that would go over too well. It has not gone well for this gentleman. That is a tainted and defiled and polluted view of the marriage bed. Anytime you longingly look at another human being that isn't your spouse, you've defiled it. Anytime you satisfy your permittable sexual desires in a way apart from your spouse, you've defiled it. Period. If it's just thoughts of your spouse, then it's, and not between the two of you, then it's no longer between the two of you. It's no longer the marriage bed at that point. It's you and thoughts of your marriage bed. Untainted, undefiled, unpolluted. One implication of this is that marriage should in no way be considered spiritually inferior to singleness or celibacy. You can't take Paul's words about wishing you were single in other passages to make singleness the ideal. I'm not saying singleness is sinful. Okay? Don't don't put words in my mouth. But here, marriage is to be honored among all. It's to have be treated in high esteem. It's to be thought of highly. I'll land on this point here. For God will judge fornicators and adulterers. God will judge them. That's what he's saying. All this stuff, dishonoring the marriage bed, dishonoring marriage, God will judge. Those who have sex before marriage and those who have sex while married with someone else, homosexuality, pedophilia, all the above, God will judge. Christians, this also means that you cannot praise or celebrate anyone in this category, nor anything that is a product of this category. For example, I got three examples. You cannot celebrate two fornicators buying a house together. You cannot celebrate two fornicators or adulterers having a child. You cannot celebrate an adulterer who finally finds the one, quote unquote. You cannot, a Christian cannot celebrate and celebrate with that which God will judge. You are mocking God and his holiness. Normal Christians pursue holiness. The next example is that normal Christians pursue holiness in money. Now, some take this into the ditch and say, shame on you for making lots of money. 
Shame on you for trying to make lots of money. That's not the problem. The problem is a love for money born from a discontentment with God. God's not giving me what I want, so I'm going to go make my own means over here to go get it. You can usually tell, it's kind of more of a side note, it's not my script. You can usually tell uh, an idolatry of money or the things that money provides. If you're willing to do things to get money while neglecting normal Christian faithfulness in other places. Now listen, what's it look like? Most people don't look at a stack of money and say, ooh, I love you. Right? Or look at that bank transaction and say, ooh, I love you. Right? No. What you usually do is look at what you've acquired with that money and feel a sense of, ooh, I love you. Security in a bank account and its balance. A particular house or property. We tend to pursue money to the neglect of pursuits that don't pay money. An insatiable desire for more, 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 or maybe sinful debt credit cards and the like to just simply buy your happiness because of your discontentment. What's the fix? Belief, confident belief that God will never forsake us. Contentment in God's provision. That's why he goes on to say, And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, not my money. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can my boss do to me? What can the bank do to me? Contentment in God's provision. You believe it, when he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. One pastor said this, this is faith's soliloquy. If God is my helper, then what can man do to me? The point here is that, is that given God's promise to be with us, The God who gave us his only son and therefore surely will give us everything else he has, then God is my helper and he will never leave or forsake me. If that's true, then why should I be afraid? Here is the antidote to the fear of man which otherwise so dominates our lives, which leads us from God and into sin. God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. Let me put that in a different pronoun. God will never leave you. And God will never forsake you. Normal Christians pursue holiness with their money. Are you generous with it? Are you faithful in your tithing? Are you generous in your tithing? If you're not... What's it say about your contentedness in God's provision for you? It says you're not. 
Next, normal Christians imitate their leaders. Normal Christians imitate their leaders. You would say, well, duh, but uh, it's not the norm. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word, spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Leaders, meaning literally those who have supervisory capacity over you. Now, the context is church leaders, especially elders. But it's not just elders, but the context is church leaders. Like, that's, that is where the line is drawn. He's not talking about your boss, but your leader. He's not talking about Joe Biden. He's talking about, thank God, but he's, he's talking about your church leaders, especially your elders. And he says, those who spoke the word to you, whether preaching, teaching, across the table, having coffee, their leadership authority, part of the reason why he draws in this, those who spoke the word of God to you, is to help us see that their leadership authority is derived from the word. It both comes from the word and it's governed by the word. Meaning they have to operate within the, the restrictions of the word. I'm going to give you some examples. For example, they don't have the authority to tell you which house you should buy. Although you should buy one out in the country with lots of acres and so on and so forth. I'm so, I'm so kidding. Even though I, every time I turn around, someone else is moving. Which is awesome. It's cool. I'm going to write up instructions on how to ask people to help you move. There's a difference. While I'm on this topic, there's a difference between help me move and help me pack. You got you know that? Did y'all know that? <laughs> like packing the truck versus packing your bedroom, two different things. <laughs> Helping me move is not help me move all of my junk into a box. Unless that box is a truck. All right, enough on that. <laughs> they, they don't have the authority to tell you which kind of car you should drive. It was a funny story yesterday. Sorry, this is totally off topic, but I was behind a Prius yesterday that was smoking like a freight train. It brought delight to my soul. <laughs> I pulled up next to her and said, and those of you who don't know what this is, don't, don't worry about it, but I pulled up next to her and said, um, dear, I, I think you have a blown head gasket. Uh, I'm not going to go into why that is why it was smoking, but you can ask me later if you're curious. She says, yes, I'm getting it fixed in two weeks. Anyways, <laughs> I mean, your engine might seize up by then, but, you know. <laughs> I, I was surprised she didn't say, I, I think if I just change my batteries, it'll all get better. I got a battery smoking back there. Anyways, uh, it was a proud dad moment, too because I diagnosed her issue. Anyways, in front of my boys and, and daughter. But they have the authority to tell you, for example, what greed looks like and where they believe greed is showing up in your life. Maybe you're buying that house because you're running from your problems over here or because you're discontent with what God has given you thus far. Right? Like, that's where 
they can speak into this, or they can show you where foolishness is. Why would you make this jump when the rest of your life screams inability to handle it? Or where you're crossing the lines on these things. I would, I would warn you too at this moment, as a side note, that you need to remember that no decision is purely a wisdom decision because all decisions are being made by a morally motivated human being. What I mean is your morality and your motives and all of the, the morality of your motives and so on and so forth is all being brought into that wisdom decision. So meaning that you could choose A or you could choose B. I may not care whether you choose A or B, but the morality, the righteousness of your motives that are leading to A or B, those are, those are always going to be present. So those who spoke the word to you, I just want to give you like, that's, that's our context. That's the restrictions. Now the stream that we are fighting against, this is important for us to see this for ourselves where we might be prone to this ourselves, but also where our children, as they grow up up in this society, what they're going to be fed. And that is this. The liberal left has facilitated a culture of deep suspicion of anyone who is not just like you, with all the same wrinkles, warts, voting patterns, skin colors, class, economics, and, thus, and so far. That is especially true of leadership, authority, power, and hierarchy. What I mean by that is they've developed it, they've led our culture, our world, our kids are being brought up in the same kind of culture where we are deeply suspicious of anyone who's in authority. Anyone. Whether that's in the church, outside the church, politics, school, whatever. And it's true even of us right now that didn't necessarily grow up, quote unquote, in the current culture. Easy for us to have a deep suspicion of anyone that's in authority. Very few of us have a natural and good bent toward trusting authority. It shows itself when many of us are quick to judge our leaders harshly, assume the worst, justify very quickly, in order to not follow or obey or to shut our ears off or just a general low-grade suspicion. I wonder why he said that. I wonder what angle he's playing. I wonder what power he's just trying to keep. But he tells us here to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate it. It's going to be really hard to do that if you're walking with a low-grade suspicion. If you're going to judge harshly. If you're going to judge according to your standards and not God's standards. It'd be really hard. It's impossible to imitate if that's the way you're going to walk. But he says to look at it closely, which means intently, carefully, with effort. He means you should mindfully do this. Like he's saying it should be a regular practice for normal Christians to look at the outcome of the way of life of their elders and then do likewise. That means more than once a year you should give thought to this. Regularly you should consider this. 
and do likewise. Again, you can only look at it closely or rightly if you aren't stuck on yourself. It's really easy. Like if you're stuck on, I've got it, then you're never going to look at anyone else to see how they're doing it. Except maybe to ridicule it in order to feel good about your way. So you have to humbly understand your ways while then looking and considering someone else's ways. Now I want to hit this from both angles. It could be something your elders wouldn't do, then you shouldn't do it either. Or if it's something your elders would do, then maybe you should do it. And I want you to consider the amount of arrogance it would take to do otherwise. Now, I'm not saying, hear me clearly, I'm not saying that it is necessarily arrogant for you to do otherwise, but I'm saying that it's likely. God has given you leaders to walk in the word among you, and for any of us to say, myself included, I'm going to do the opposite of those whom God has given the grace to exemplify true faith is a quite astounding thing to do. Now listen, I'm not saying that's because your elders are more awesome than you or that they know the Bible so much better than you. What I'm saying is that God, that if God has called them to be your leaders and to set an example of life that you should imitate, then God will supply them with the grace and power and resources to model for you the way of life. So, so I'm, I'm not saying they're incredible and they're awesome. I'm saying God is awesome in his supplying them, and you're going against that supply. So when you say, no, nah, I got my own way, or when you say, no, nah, I don't really need to look at how they do it, there's likely a good bit of arrogance and pride at work. There are so many times that I hear of decisions being made in the body, and I ask myself, has that person considered whether or not the elders would walk that way? You should consider the outcome of their faith. I ask my kids all the time, I know your siblings and friends at school are doing that, but do you see your parents doing that? It usually communicates pretty well with them. And you should do likewise. Now let's talk about this imitate their faith. I'm, before I run out of time here. He says imitate the, the life of faith. So me... It's going to kind of start to define this a little closer for us. He doesn't mean just imitate. Let me back up. I'm going to give you two things he doesn't mean, and then I'm going to define. Two things he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean just imitate some in the clouds, subjective belief, some feeling about God, some ethereal, like, sense of, yes, God is, is all. Like, he's not... He's not it's more than that. On the flip side, he doesn't mean to imitate their preferences, their fancies, their faults, good or bad. So meaning their fancies or their preferences that are good 
or their faults that are bad, but to imitate their faith. So it doesn't mean you have to like the color blue if all of your elders like the color blue. Let me give you an, let me give you an example here from my own, my own life. Majority of your elders, which means the other three and not me, enjoy cigars and pipes. I don't know if you know that, but they do. I, on the other hand, do not. Now, let me define the faith matter here. Let's not be so quick to say, of course, because it's their preference, I don't have to like their preference. That's true. But here's the faith matter. So you got to follow me here. In the Christian heritage that most of us have known, Salvation has been wrapped up in avoiding things like alcohol, tobacco, tattoos, and so on. That's back to the piety thing that I started with, wanting to be holier than the Bible. Namely, if I don't do these things, then I'm a Christian. Namely, faith was placed in not doing those things versus Jesus Christ. That's the tradition. And so, the faith of the other three elders has allowed them to enjoy with great freedom God's gift in this way. Namely, they don't see enjoying cigars or not enjoying cigars as a matter of saving faith but as something God has made and that they are free to enjoy. And so they enjoy it with great freedom and invite others to do the same. They've not tried to act more holy than the Bible. Now, two comments in light of this passage and a call to imitate their faith. It would be foolish and potentially arrogant for me to press myself in on them. I don't partake, not because I think that's the more holy thing to do. I just don't like it. <laughs> it's just, it's just, just don't like it. It doesn't smell good to me. I have, I have no desire. I, I, sometimes there's a pipe smell that will smell delightful. But I, have, I have just no desire, just like, just like I have no desire to eat McDonald's. I mean, sorry to equate McDonald's and your cigars together, but, you know. It's like I have no desire to drive a Prius, right? Sorry, Chris. A cigar while driving a Prius, that's pretty funny. Those don't go together. Second comment. I don't have to imitate the act of smoking cigars or pipes. That's a preference thing. They enjoy them. I simply do not. But again, my lack of enjoying them is not a matter of saving faith. I don't not partake because I think that's holy. I just don't enjoy them. Again, like I don't enjoy standing in the line at the BMV. I don't have to imitate their smoking cigars. But, here's my big but, it's in bold. But I must imitate their faith that is in Christ alone, 
and the joy and the freedom that comes from that. I need to build a culture with them that joyfully enjoys all that God has given us, the freedom to enjoy, and should imitate that kind of faith. I should be a part of that kind of faith and celebrate that kind of faith. Raise my kids with that kind of faith. So then I landed on this question of, well, then what, what should we imitate practically? I'm going to talk about that tomorrow on cold pizza. Imitate faith or imitate life is the last sub-point here before I get to the, my final point. Imitate faith or imitate life. Like, is, do, do I, is it just like this belief thing that I'm supposed to, or is it uh, uh, I'm supposed to do things in life the way they do things in life? If you imitate their faith, their belief, then at the very least, your life's going to look similar. There's going to be similarities. It doesn't mean that you have to move out of the city and buy land as well. I just want to make sure you all know that, okay? But your faith and all of the products of a godly faith should be present in your life. So here's my point is if you imitate their faith, then there's going to be aspects of your life that are going to look similar, and that's good. It's not a one or the other, but it's the the one flows from the other. Joyful living is a product of faith. Your life should similarly look joyful. Risk-taking is a product of faith. Your life should be one that looks like risk-taking. Covenant commitment is a product of faith. Healthy households are a product of faith. Honored marriage bed is a product of faith. Rejoicing while attacked by pagans is a product of faith. Hospitality is a product of faith. So I don't know if you notice what I'm doing. The, the first group of things are like the actions of life. It's the, the way the life looks. Those were all going to look similar if we're all imitating the same faith. All right, so now back to the passage right here at the end. Verse 8. It says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't know if it struck you when you read this, but why does he put that there then? It, honestly, it seems quite out of nowhere. And my final point is this. Christ never changes. Christ never changes. The object of the former leader's faith never changes. Earlier leaders of the church come and go. They live and they die. Your current leaders will live and they will die. However, Jesus lives forever, unchanging and unaffected by mortality or anything else that would hinder him from providing leadership, counsel, encouragement, strength, and whatever else might be needed by his people. He never changes. I don't have time to go into this, but there are three implications concerning Christ here. Look these up, study them later. The divinity of Christ, the immutability of Christ, and the constant faithfulness of Christ to his people. So why, but here's where I'm going I'm to put the exclamation point on. Why the insert here? Why is he placed this here? 
It's a battle cry, not a creed. It's a battle cry. Yes, we certainly believe it as a creed. Yes, we believe it as a doctrine. But that's not the intent of the author. It's not just, hey, we believe that Jesus is this. He isn't writing, do this, do that, do this. Oh, and by the way, Jesus never changes. He's saying, here's what he's saying. It's what I mean by a battle cry. We can confidently embrace the pattern of the Christian life taught in the Bible because Jesus is the same. He never changes. So go. Life changes. I don't know if you sense that or feel that. Circumstances change. I don't know if you hate that or like that. Time changes, and not just twice a year. But our behavior Rooted in faith in Jesus is rooted in something that never changes. Our faith is rooted in something transcendent of circumstances and time. You know that phrase that gets shoved down our throats often? It goes something like this. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You heard that in lots of cultural things recently. Like, for example, if you don't affirm queer ideology, you, you will be on the wrong side of history. Listen, when it comes to the pattern of the Christian life taught in the Bible, because Jesus never changes, you will never be on the wrong side of history. Everyone else will be. Because Jesus Christ is the same Now is our turn to live as Christ's people in a manner that would be recognizable to those who came before us. They, nor the Lord, will accept the excuse that our times are different from theirs, nor should they. Why? Times have changed, but Jesus hasn't means his power, his resources, his standards, none of that's changed. I get it. The emphasis and the idolatries of our culture may shift from decade to decade or moment to moment. But Jesus and his standard and his power, the gospel never changes. And that's where we are rooted at. Jesus Christ is the same today as ever. It is Jesus we represent and display before the people of our day. And because he is the same, in a world where Christians love to make their own laws and hold others to it, and in a world where a Christian trying to be really careful to follow God's actual laws gets called a legalist for it, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, We live this pattern of the Christian life, and we can, by God's grace, make Christian obedience normal again. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in a world that seems as shifting and changing and weird and difficult as the waves of the ocean are to control or to pattern or to recognize when they're about to shift. Jesus never changes. He never shifts. His expectations never change. 
His abundant, gracious supply never changes. His power never shrinks and never grows, for it is the same yesterday, today, and it will be tomorrow. Father, we can hang our hat on Christ. We can stake our lives on Christ. We can walk confidently in this pattern, knowing you will never forsake us or leave us. Father, we can walk confidently in contentedness. Father, we can be righteous and holy with our money, with uh, our sexual desires, because Jesus never changes. Father, we can live because Jesus never changes. Father, as we go about today, as we go to lunch, as we go to eat, as, as we live uh, uh, getting ready for the week that has begun today, help us to sing the battle cry that Jesus never changes. Father, we ask all this for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.